Dr. Jessica Bennett, and this is the Mindful Literacy Podcast. In this podcast, you will hear inspiring interviews with teachers and experts in the field who will give you actionable tips and strategies that you can immediately implement in your teaching practice. In episode nine, I have a conversation with Brenda Russo. Brenda is a Mindful Literacy Columbus board member. I met Brenda at an IEP meeting when I was an intervention specialist. Brenda was advocating for a child we both were serving. Through the years as we worked on multiple cases together, Brenda has taught me so much about how to facilitate true IEP partnerships between the school and families. In 2009, she led parents to evoke massive systemic changes in their school district in Upper Arlington, Ohio. The story of this change was recently released as a documentary in Our Dyslexic Children. She calls herself a child advocate, but I call her an advocate for all. She is bright, gracious, and so kind. A former intervention specialist herself, she truly understands not only the content and theory, but also the praxis of being a teacher. In this episode, Brenda challenges us all to push beyond what is appropriate and strive together to achieve what is best for all children. She gives so many practical tips for IEP teams in this episode. If you are part of an IEP team in any capacity, you will want to pull over the car, put down the laundry, and grab a notebook for this one. Sitting with Brenda Lewison, a special education teacher, a child advocate who has become my mentor in the space of public education. And I'm so grateful that you're here today to talk to our audience. Thank you, Jessica. That's so nice to say. Glad to be here. I got to see you a couple of days ago for our board meeting, and I just want to again just thank you so much for being a part of this dream and this journey with me. You're one of, you know, the people saying yes, I believe in you. Yes, you can do this, and I and I'm just so glad you're sitting right next to me, holding my hand while we do this together. It's a privilege. I'm inspired by what you're doing and the dream that you're dreaming. So, complete privilege. One of the reasons we're sitting here together is because of the work we've done together for children. And when I came in back to the classroom after getting my doctorate, you know, we, we started working on cases together and the way that you are so gracious and graceful and gentle in suggesting changes to a child's plan and to suggesting ways you could implement plans that were very rigorous was very helpful to each and every child that we served together. And it opened my own learning experience, being able to work with one of the most renowned tutors in our area, become my mentor and teach me how to become a better teacher. So I thank you for that work that you've done. It's been a wonderful journey with you. And one of the things I think is remarkable is you worked many, many projects across the state and you've really started to plant the seed to reimagine education for kids who have dyslexia. For sure. It's a, it's very near and dear to my heart. Go ahead. And it's something that I, I researched and I followed and I, it became a very uh, focused area of my advocacy very early on in my career. When there's actually a documentary that came out earlier this spring about the work that you did with some of the children and families and teachers and districts. Will you talk to that? Sure. Somewhere in 2009, I think I was contacted by a woman in the Upper Arlington City School District who was working with students who were struggling to read. And she invited me to her home and I met with maybe 20 or 30 families that night. And they all were telling me the same story, that their children were receiving some kind of reading support, not always formally played out in any kind of educational record. The kids had largely been in interventions for two, three, four years without any progress. Simple questions like, is your child on an IEP? Is your child on some sort of a plan? The parents were completely in the dark about what was happening. 
And it felt very systemic and it was mostly concentrated in a particular building. And that building had a lot of history. That building had a landmark special education lawsuit uh, that I followed years prior and couldn't be because if ever there was an OG instructor available to a student, it would have been in that building in the state of Ohio. So I started working with each family and across my record reviews, I just saw a pattern forming and I could see pretty quickly it was a systemic issue. And so when we were trying to work through those individual students, there was a lot of pushback from the school district. There was a lot of ignorance it was such a big mountain to climb. And so we organized and I thought the best way to do this is to do it collectively. We would work through individual cases, but I felt like to change the culture of the district was going to take something much more intense. And we worked with the district for course of that year. We partnered with them the best we could. The documentary really speaks to our efforts to work with administrators and board members We had, in fact, mediator work with us to kind of work through some of our understanding of reading instruction and what it meant to have a diagnosis of dyslexia and what it meant to receive Orton-Gillingham with fidelity. So long story short, there ended up being a complaint filed against the district. It was not a due process. Some people refer to it as the lawsuit. It was not a lawsuit. It was a state complaint, but it was done in a group effort. And so we had the results, the, the state weighed in on that complaint and the letter of findings came out in August, August 29th, 2011, I believe. And it provided quite a bit of corrective action for the district. And there were some changes at the administrative level and the documentary does a beautiful job telling the story and slowly but surely the need to hire Um, certified Orton-Gillingham instructors, not just in this building, but across the district, and to really change pretty significantly how children were identified, how how children were served. In hindsight, I think it's what I am most proud of professionally, and the courage and the bravery of the parents to really take this on and to learn. They really were very uninformed when I met them and they became, each and every one of them became experts uh, with their children. And then not only in finding a remedy for their children, but for the district and not just for the district, but for the children whose names they would never know who were in neighboring districts across the state and beyond. So what a wonderful thing to be a part of. That's what I'm most proud of professionally. I think anyone would say Upper Arlington is the district to be in in the state of Ohio if you have a child with dyslexia because of their focus on providing such a high level of service. And they have now such a deep understanding of how to serve children, how to support children. And it's been a beautiful endeavor. How long did the journey take from that meeting in the living room until the place you could say where the school district is the premier district to be in? You know, that's a great question because I sat in this one room with many meetings at Barrington Elementary and I felt sometimes like maybe I had two heads and I I, I was speaking a different language. And I remember it was after they had hired Dr. Gorman, it was a year out when we filed. It was a year before a lot of the corrective actions. So I would say two, three, four, maybe five years out. I was sitting in the same room with similar people and the decisions that were being made in that room were incredible. I didn't have to even sort of justify a request that I had for students. ESY was discussed uh, in advance. It was being provided, which is extended school year. And I just sat in the meeting and I took a minute and I thought, oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm sitting in the same room that I was just a few years ago. And I said, Upper Arlington has earned the right to share what has happened. I felt like there was some ownership on the district to share their bragging rights if you will, what they have learned, what they were able to understand in terms of the programming of our students was really remarkable. And it was just sitting in the room, I said to Dr. Gorman, you need to take this outside of your district and begin to share. And I think that did happen 
Brett Tingley and a number of the other uh, parents that were involved in the UA Kid group uh, partnered with the district and they sort of took it on the road. They took their story to different um, platforms. I think Cobida was one of them. The uh, Ohio Department of Education was also, if I remember, hosted. We hosted something at the high school many years ago, but it was that it was an opportunity for the Upper Arlington City School District to shine and to show what they have learned. And the partnership that formed between the district, the parents in particular, the students and the school was the ultimate, most positive outcome we could have expected. So it's, it's really a special story. It's a beautiful story. It's one of hope. It's one of celebration. And I think the true winners in all of this were the children. Uh, many of them have graduated just this year who were part of that documentary and are doing exceedingly well. And they're dreaming big dreams for themselves, attending universities, becoming who they're supposed to be. Look at what's happened. Look how the relationships healed. I think they're very much the leaders in the Central Ohio area when it comes to reading. So it's a full circle moment. And what's the name of the documentary? For sure. All Our Dyslexic Children. Might have to edit that out, Jessica. I have to think about that. Our Dyslexic Children. It went through different names. <laughs> Our Dyslexic Children is the name of the documentary. Yeah. Okay, so I have a few questions from that story. What do you think were the variables that contributed to this becoming a success story? You mentioned the partnership between the parents and the schools. Yeah, that was critical. What other variables were important? Certainly the, the trusting, getting to a space where people could talk about a student's programming and it there was no longer a divide in the room. So sometimes when parents show up for their IEP meeting, for example, the team is all assembled, you show up, and in some cases, you know, you're looking at an IEP for the first time, the draft. Sometimes the document doesn't say draft. It's just a document. And you're having to speak to a document that you believe is kind of set in stone in some way. And I think what changed, other than the relationships and the trust that began to uh, grow within parents and teachers, was an understanding of sharing the data. Because the data was always reported out in a way that a lot of parents didn't understand. So there were these standalone numbers or names of assessments with no description of what the assessment measured or what was uh, the outcome. Very little comparison. So parents were finally sitting in these meetings and the district was doing a much better job of explaining each assessment, what it means, why it matters, each score in a way that a parent who is not in the educational field, we speak in vernacular, I think sometimes in terms of no matter what the parent's educational level is, they struggle to, under, to follow us and to understand what we're talking about. So Upper Arlington changed how they would share information. So first was the trust. Second was the opening up of communication. But third was just this ability to break down assessment data and make sure that the parents were able to follow it and had an opportunity to ask questions because to do that in the moment is really hard. You know, a lot of parents go to their children's IP meetings with an element of heightened emotion. And so while you are certainly in the room listening to a conversation, you're not always internalizing what is being shared with you. So I really appreciated how Upper Arlington in particular slowed the process down, would break meetings up into two if necessary. They knew their parents and they could certainly make good uh, judgment on who needed more time. They were engaging in some pre-IEP meetings. They were formal meetings, but they were just to kind of review data first and perhaps engage parents more readily in their wishes and hopes and dreams for the IEP programming. And it just, it shifted. And I think for the first time, Upper Arlington families were feeling very much a, an equal part of the process. And the children felt that shift as well. And it became less emotional, more matter of fact, less gatekeeping, more resources were being agreed upon, good resources. And at the end of the day, there was much more accountability. It was a win-win. Parents felt better. School felt better. School and teachers, administrators, it was just a good outcome. But the trust, it starts with trust. And I think that's what had to be repaired. And that's not an easy thing to do. And everyone earned their right at the table to say what they needed to say. And all of a sudden, this shift became palpable. You could feel it. And it was um, very much, it became more of a celebration. We saw the kids making meaningful growth 
and we included the children in the meetings as much as possible. And so from the, out of the mouths of babes, they felt this shift in what was happening and continues to be a really positive, I think for the most part, at least with the children on my caseload, it's, it's a very positive outcome in most cases, for sure. What do you think initiated that behavior change in the adults in the school building? It took time. I think initially, a lot of people took uh, the complaint personally. They took the questions in terms of that that accountability uh, discussion personally. It just took time and patience. And I think a willingness to look at the individual needs, not just of the student, but of the parents. Some parents required more time. So these meetings were broken up across multiple meetings. A marathon meeting is difficult for anyone. It's really hard to hold your attention for two hours. To me, a meeting that goes much beyond an hour, hour and a half, you start to lose people in the room in terms of their engagement. So I think breaking the meetings up into smaller meetings, having opportunities to make the parent the priority in terms of their time, their availability. So they were included differently during the shift and it just felt more cohesive. And I think regular ed teachers took an interest in what was happening within the special ed realm and started adopting some of the Orton-Gillingham approach within their everyday teachings. Eventually, foundations was brought into the classroom. And so the excitement at the meeting, the excitement in the room as everybody was learning and everybody was on board with this change. And it was wonderful. But slowing things down became, this was not a template. Hurry up. We have 45 minutes to get through a 32-page document. It became, let's break this up in two sections so that you are comfortable. The parental feedback aspect of this was remarkable in terms of allowing the parents to share their frustration and making that a part of their their child's IEP was important. So there was closure in their feelings about what maybe was broken or not happening. There was an honesty about what needed to change. And so it was really in that we had difficult conversations. It didn't happen quickly, Jessica. It took time. But now there's a safety in, I think, parents being able to say what they need to say. And there's a willingness and the administrators listen and they honor, I think, that piece of a parent's role in the process. I am smiling. Kind of dreamy. (laughs) It is. Hold on. I have a question about that to the teachers, right? And so it is, and you do it just so beautifully. Never once did I ever feel threatened or intimidated. I really felt like you were part of the team, which I think is important. I try to bring resources with me. And so if I'm going to address something that is of concern, I certainly try to have a remedy or a resource or consideration for the team. Because if you just show up and say, I don't like this, or this isn't working, or this is broken, but you don't have, um, as an advocate, a remedy for that, everyone's just sitting in the room looking at each other, not sure where to go. And so that collaboration is, I think, um, the most important part of how I advocate for children. And I get to bring back the tidbits that I think are most effective, most bridging and, and share, right? I'll even put people across multiple um, when there's a program or a methodology or something special that's working. And most teachers, most people buy into that because as teachers, we're, right, we are um, knowledge seekers. We're students ourselves. And that has been a wonderful So I'm thinking about this, you know, the success story. And of course, it would be wonderful to be able to replicate this state across the country. And so what I'm hearing is there's really two tenets, and and maybe you can speak to this, but one is the relationship between the parents and the school really has to be functional. Yes, has to be a healthy, trusting relationship. Yeah. And the second piece I'm hearing is the content and the curriculum that's being taught. And so I've seen you firsthand mend and facilitate healthy relationships between the school and family, but I haven't seen you working in the back end on how to, you talked about systemic change. How do you facilitate systemic change, knowing that it's probably going to take up to five years on things like the curriculum? It's a big to do, right? And it takes a village to want to make that change. 
I think in the case of the Upper Arlington City School District, it really was um, the decision to, to file a state complaint and then have the department oversee the corrective action piece. So that was a very formal execution of accountability. And that's not always, there's more than one way, I think, to, to do this, but this was the most effective way under the circumstances. Okay, so the question I was asking was, I see, I'm hearing you say there's really two tenets to creating the systemic change that needed to take place to best serve dyslexia. And it, one was facilitating healthy relationships with school family. And the other sounds like it is creating change in the curriculum and what was being taught and how it was being taught. Correct. So really it came down to data, uh, the, the quality of the data that was being presented, the instruments that were measuring progress or lack thereof, inconsistencies across instruments and interpreting those numbers were inconsistent among teachers and administrators. So there really needed to be a in my opinion, less subjectivity, more objectivity as to well, what do we know about the students? So we, we looked at some of the different instruments that were being used to measure students' growth. And I'll share with you some of the instruments at that time. Those instruments are no longer being used in the Upper Arlington City School District, but it was, um, ooh, it was a force to even have a conversation about some of the DRA, the Developmental Reading Assessment data. Uh, the DRA was the be-all and end-all at the time. And students had had multiple exposures to, this, uh, to the same story that they struggled to read. But because there were teachers at the time who didn't stop the test when the students didn't make the first cuts on that assessment, they continued a conversation with the student in terms of the comprehension part. So smart dyslexic kids, you talk to them, and they're going to remember. So we could see in acquisition of all the data that they had been exposed to the story four times. And they really weren't reading any better than they were originally. They just were able to master the comprehension portion because the story had been discussed. They were overly assessed. And this may not be the best, most objective instrument for students to understand growth. And so there was a really wonderful shift in the instruments, a discussion about what are those instruments? What's the fidelity of the instrument, are we adhering to the protocol? That became, everyone would say, oh gee, with fidelity, it almost like was connected. <laughs> Part of the, you know, everything was with fidelity, with fidelity. And there was a, I think, a push on the district side to really train the teachers through a series of various professional developments that helped everyone. Because we were all coming to the table now understanding the data from the same perspective. That was helpful. And then we were all able to also make good recommendations based on that data. And some of our kids, if we had a reading comprehension goal, we were careful to call it a listening comprehension goal because they were afforded, um, these were some of our non-readers, they really weren't able to access grade level curriculum. They couldn't read the story, but they were smart and could understand the story if the story was read to them. So we started with listening comprehension goals with an understanding that that would slowly move into an actual reading comprehension and parents were part of the discussion. We made those notations within the document in the present levels and parents could follow the document more easily for the first time. It wasn't this broken set of data points that didn't mean anything. And so it was really great to see everybody was coming together with a leveled playing field and it had a positive impact. So that was the instrument, starting with the instruments and then the methodology so the Orton-Gillingham, whether it was one-on-one -on -one being delivered, in some cases they were grouping children together and there was an understanding of how to ability group kids and that those groupings could change over a period of weeks or months, depending on when one student was able to move forward, if one student needs more time and really sharing with parents, um, ability grouping can work. There's a social component to that that makes, I think, children feel less isolated in they're not the only ones struggling to read when that's done well, right? And sharing with parents why that is. And we have to move a student to a one-on-one -on -one delivery, um, being sensitive to, to why that's happening, what is their attention and level of engagement. And then Upper Arlington just made this decision to hire Orton-Gillingham certified instructors uh, out of uh, the Dyslexia Center. And there was just an increased level of programming, I think, 
And there was an assessment the OG tutors were using called the core. And that started a foundation, a base by which to measure against two or three times a year. And over time, we could, and rather than losing parents in the narrative of all this data, we could just show them a chart and say, here's where they were in the fall. Here's where they are in the spring, side by side. And that seemed to really help. And that really digs into different aspects of a child's learning. The specificity of the sub-tests, we could see kids making a little bit of progress here and we were able to celebrate that. Not always something you could catch on other instruments. And so little bits of growth mattered. Little bits of lack of growth mattered. And that data drove how we programmed the goal, the objectives, and all of a sudden... Uh, everyone was working, you know, on behalf of a student and understanding one another and the direction, short-term and long-term, where are we taking this student? And I think the OG instructors certainly participate, if not drive some of those meetings for students with dyslexia, but the gen ed teachers level of engagement was also completely increased because what was happening over there mattered now what was happening in the classroom and the, the reg ed teachers had a level of understanding and could incorporate and add to the discussion what it looks like in the general education classroom using the foundations and it made a world of difference in how we looked at these goals and dreamt a dream for a child. Yeah it sounds like teamwork is essentially important and when the whole team is able to respond to meaningful data that's what really nudges the needle forward. Even the speech and language pathologists had an increased role, I think, in this process because they were really managing the language side of this for a lot of our kids. And it was amazing to see the ownership or the shared partnership for goals and objectives across the whole team. So we have regular education, general education teachers, uh, speech and language pathologists, and reading specialists, certified advanced reading specialists, all coming together to brainstorm what is necessary for a student. And that shared responsibility just meant growth for a student. It was inevitable. There were too many eyes and ears on one child. And I think there was, in many cases, we didn't wait a whole year to meet again, or we didn't just meet when there were problems. We made a deliberate decision to meet quarterly, to be proactive in the information and in the shared uh, data understanding. And so I think those meetings became shorter in duration and much more positive. And I think it was an opportunity to make changes without a lot of emotion or confusion about anything. I often will encourage those quarterly meetings to really help, at least in the beginning when you're trying to establish a stronger sense of relationship and trust and understanding the data, those quarterly meetings really made a difference, I think, in how the year executed and parents didn't even know they could call those quarterly meetings. They were much more effective. Yeah. Parents got comfortable with you know, 11 people in the room, I think. That's a bit daunting from a parent perspective. When you walk in a room, the entire school team is assembled. You feel often a divide. It's just a natural. You know, I almost like it when teachers are filtering in at the same time. And I would be purposeful almost in that. Imagine anyone walking into any meeting and everybody is seated and kind of there's been a discussion and you're kind of coming in on the tail end of that to start your meeting. Um, it's unsettling. And so changing how we invite parents into a room to talk about their kids is important. Yeah, I definitely think what you're saying, you know, talking about how we're treating parents makes a huge difference. They're truly the partners. They're truly the partners at the table. You know, saying things to parents like, I hear you. You know what? Here's what I'm hearing. And you reiterate back to them, not only what you think they have shared with you, but also in some sort of hierarchy area of need. I'm not saying that a school needs to agree with a parent, but a parent needs to feel heard. And a parent needs to say, you know, this is your most, in terms of all of your concerns, Maybe there are six of them. I don't know. This is, let's talk about this one first. I think when, when intervention specialists organize an agenda, that is extremely helpful in making sure that you can get through and not get off, you know, derail in some way or off task on a conversation. The agenda is an important start to a meeting, but making sure that a parent has that agenda in advance and can edit and make sure that their areas of concern are put up front. I think if you can listen to the parent 
and start the meeting with their input, um, the rest of the meeting executes much more readily. And the focus is on the child. And when meetings come together and there's less of an agenda, it's just a traditional IEP meeting and we're all over the place. It doesn't feel like we really made any kind of significant movement in the areas of a parental concern. So how we listen, how we organize that information. Sometimes I hear a lot intervention specialists want parents' questions in advance of the meeting. Well, sometimes you need to have the discussion. You don't know what your questions are in advance of the meeting. So making sure that there's time in the meeting to pause, take a break. Do you have any questions? Makes a difference in the outcome for sure. Those are great recommendations. And I'm hearing both for teachers and parents. And I'm hearing if this is like mindfulness and it's that, right? Pausing, checking in with each other's feelings. Yeah. I think part of my advocacy is I'd like to teach parents how to agree to disagree. What do you do when someone says no? And it's really, really important to you as a parent, right? So it's never personal for me, but teaching parents how to execute on something like that is really important. Teaching a parent, I want to continue this discussion, but I want you to put all those answers in the prior written notice so I can see it in writing, right? There's a format by this conversation has to play out formally. And it's not personal. You just invite the team, but you're, you need to continue the discussion. This is really important. And there's no bad feelings. And teachers to feel confident in their ability to put that information and reflect accurately what happened in the meeting. It's not personal. It's just a way the process is designed and it's for sake of clarity. And so I think, so you meet again and you talk again and you can have a little humor with that. You know, some parents will bring food because it's the second or third time you're talking about something really important. Not to say that that doesn't lead to some more bad feelings in some way. It can, uh, but if you're heard in the beginning and the parents are feeling valued in terms of their input and there's okay, we'll agree to disagree, but we'll continue that conversation. That just executes so much differently and um, the children benefit. People are still talking and that's always good. Yeah, when the focus is on the child. Absolutely. As you said in the beginning, it's not just for that particular child, but the adults around the table are learning. And so it's really laying the groundwork for the children who will come after. I guess my next question is, what has been through this whole process, this, let's say just for the sake of round numbers, a five-year process, what was the biggest challenge for you? In general, in my advocacy or specific to the Upper Arlington School District? I guess either. You know, I think everyone in special education would agree with me if I said funding. Sometimes it comes down to money. It's not that a district doesn't want to do something, but we're lacking, a district is lacking resources to do it, Right. And I'm not privy to the conversations that happen before the meeting or after the meeting, but I think um, funding is an important component. I also would say to you, there are gatekeepers along the way. There are people who just through, it's really a, a pattern and practice, a culture within the district. They say no to things. And <laughs> I toothless. They say no to resources. They say no to services because they've never done that before. So the answer is no, we don't do that in this district. And so asking then someone on the school side, on the district side to put that in writing, I think really forces you to think how you're going to justify a no, right? And then I see that there's some professional development needed in completing a prior written notice. So how do we say no to a parent? You really do have to file the, you have to complete the state guidelines and answer all of the questions in their entirety. And A is not a, an, it's not an acceptable answer at ODE. And that's hard. So when I go into some districts that are just used to not doing something, they say no, because I would say it's a pattern in practice. It's not a written policy, Jessica. And I encourage parents to say, if they hear no, you know, and they say, it's not our policy, it's not, this is not what we do in X district, I would ask a parent to ask the district for the adopted written policy, the board policy that says you can't do this. And generally, it doesn't exist. It's just for many, many, many years, nobody's looked at something outside of their box. Do you think it's a matter of, you know, you know the saying, when you know better, you do better? Do you think? Yes, 100%. 
Okay. My experience has been inherently people who are in the profession of education. Yes. Most, most people do. Yes. I agree with you. Mm-hmm. I love this. I'm hearing trends in, okay, if I'm an, if I'm an intervention specialist, I get the, the draft of the IEP out in advance. I create an agenda. I make sure the data is consumable to somebody who doesn't have training. And I'm hearing if I'm a parent and I'm confused about something, I ask, hey, can you take a minute and re-explain that in a different way? And it's okay to have big emotions when you're that parent at the table. Yeah. I actually think it's okay also. So to ask a parent to step outside in the hallway, if there's any feeling of intimidation, because I think that's a general rule, depending on you know the age of the parent, how we question a teacher is is uh, can be very difficult. And we don't want someone to not like our kid. We don't want, I mean, there's just a lot of big emotions happening in the, in the room, not just from the parent side, but from a teacher side, right? I think it's perfectly okay to say, can we just step outside for a minute and give the parent a minute to collect themselves or, you know, and, or, or a teacher, take a teacher. It could be an administrator stepping outside for a minute and resetting and resetting a meeting. If it's starting to derail is really important to do that on the front end and not on the back end of a big emotion because it is much more challenging to reset. And I would say, can I talk to you outside for just a second? Can I, you know, just have a word with you? Or stopping the meeting is important if it's going to be challenging to get through a discussion and giving everyone just a minute to collect themselves. Because once you've escalated into a feeling of anger or frustration or sadness, it's very hard to bring the meeting back and finish out a meeting and feel good about a meeting. And then to make big de- big decisions at the end of the meeting about service <laughs> delivery, right? You're still stuck on something that was said or something that happened early on in the meeting. So that's a really important, I think, permission. I would want to make sure everybody on the team could take a minute for whatever reason, take a minute, take a break, reset, so we can come back and be more objective and focused. And sometimes those discussions, what parents want to talk about, are not necessarily appropriate for an IEP meeting. Sometimes that is a discussion with the principal and just helping parents know where is the right forum then to have this discussion, not that it can't circle back. So let's say it's a bullying issue, right? That's a really important component of a student's learning that we have to understand the environment, but there's sometimes names that need to be shared and things like that, that I would also give guidance to parents. Hey, could we talk a little bit more about this after the meeting? Would you be able to meet me in my office? Would you be able to tomorrow call me or whatever? I just don't, I think we have to help everyone understand the purpose of the IEP meeting and what's relevant. It's all relevant in my opinion, but some conversations play out better in more private rooms. That's all. Absolutely. I think too, especially ones where you're talking, you know, you talked about creating systemic change and changes in credentialing. So when you're talking about a teacher's um, professional development, credentialing, maybe that's one too that could happen with the administrator. Absolutely. There's a time and there's a place. And I would say to anyone in the room, teacher-wise or parent-wise, it's all important to me. Everything you know about this student or think you know about the student or want to know about the student matters. What can we really execute for the purposes of this meeting? And I think to some degree, we have to be um, efficient in our meetings that we get through the process because we've got timelines and some of them are artificial. Some of them are real hard timelines, um, making sure that everyone is feeling good about where we are. So that organizational component, that executive functioning up front really helps set the agenda, helps everyone feel heard helps everyone have a process. I'll tell you, a pet peeve is that teachers leave the meeting before the IEP meeting is over with. And we haven't yet gotten to section seven where we're talking about services, where those services are being delivered and how those accommodations and in some cases modifications are playing out. I think it is absolutely impossible to do that without the support of a gen ed teacher. I do, because who better than the gen ed teacher to know if that wording is accurate in terms of support and leveling the playing field because unfortunately when teachers leave before that, and that typically comes at toward the end of the meeting, um, there I've seen some resentment. They can't possibly execute on all of those accommodations. And had that teacher been a more 
integral part of the conversation. Maybe as a team, we could have seen that differently or developed the wording differently. Their role is too important. So on an annual meeting, I don't like to see um, the absence of a gen ed, reg ed teacher in the meeting. For those check-ins, you know, you can kind of pick and choose uh, in terms of your team members, I think, who needs to be there. But I value so much what the general education teacher sees and knows and understands about a student and um, figuring out a way to really make sure they have a presence in the meeting. In particular, that portion of the meeting is something I would like to change. I'd like to see more teachers there for that conversation. I, I, I learned so much from them um, in terms of how does this child then look compared to other students, right? Where is that gap? Socially, academically, something that, that we need to work on. There's a reason why that general education teacher is required to be there. <laughs> so I would prefer to stop the meeting actually and reconvene the meeting and make sure that teacher is included in that conversation. And then I think there's more ownership as to what's being programmed for a student. And I don't like it, the idea that this, that's over there, that special ed, that's happening over there in a the room, in a box. I don't need to understand that to do what I'm doing in the classroom. I think that's a very antiquated understanding of how um, the programming is supposed to work. And so I would like to see um, a more, a stronger intention to include the regular education teacher and shared responsibilities. I think that's a great, I, is that your magic wand? If you could make, wave a magic wand, would that be your change? Well, you know, I love the question. My magic wand is there's endless, endless amounts of money and resources <laughs> for all of our children, right? I just feel like that's always, sometimes the no's are because of the resource. I know that, you know, there's numbers that are, we've maxed out on numbers. There's reasons why people say no, I don't always agree with them. But if funding was never an issue, I imagine we could make different decisions for children. But I would say, and Jessica, you're aware of this too. I know at Ohio State, the special ed department, we worked separate from the regular education teachers in the arts building, right? The PAS and the arts, <laughs> very seldom did we cross. Um, at least in, in my experience. And I think even at the university level, integrating and learning to collaborate more deliberately between the two hats play out better in the real world when we need regular ed teachers, gym teachers, art teachers, music teachers to have a much stronger understanding in terms of programming and um, serving students and supporting students. I'd like to see that stronger that community be better, more transparency, more training. But I think it starts at a university level, in my opinion. I have so many thoughts about that. One is, it's one thing to sit and write a really beautiful by the book, perfect IEP. And, the, and it's a completely other to be able to execute that. So one thing I always appreciate when the Jenna teacher is there, when an advocate who really understands how things actually work in a school are able to say, is this really going to play out? How are we actually going to execute this? And it's written great, but we may need to change it based on the feasibility of the plan. Right. And if not minutes, a shared responsibility, right? So it's intervention specialist and teacher could share some of these responsibilities in terms of services, whereas the intervention specialist is doing the actual day-to-day -day teaching, but then we have a gen ed teacher who is applying, making sure that those strategies are being applied really in the gen ed classroom. And if a teacher has, you know, who knows what their circumstances are. I'm not in the classroom. I don't get to observe. I don't pretend to know what that looks like. But he or she could have such important input as to the realistic efficacy of that application. Is it possible? What do we need to do to support the regular education teacher in that environment to make sure there's a carryover? Because that is the expectation that not only are kids working over here, but that they're able to apply what they're learning in a real meaningful way that has to happen in the general education classroom. And if a teacher needs support in some way, of course, that comes down to resources, that comes down to money. But I think it's an honest, I don't want to see a teacher frustrated, not because she doesn't want to help the student, but because she is legit or he is legitimately unable to provide the support. And when they're not in the room and we've made the decision that the gen ed teacher will do this or that, and then it doesn't happen, um, there's a breakdown, the student's programming that can lead to a lot of mistrust and it's problematic. So I like it when everyone's working together. 
Yeah, to produce a document. And again, Jessica, I say this to parents time and time again, public education is not the best. What's best for your child? We all want what's best for our children. I do and you do. And I don't know a parent who wouldn't want best, but we have to program what's appropriate. And so that's really, uh, it takes people who understand the student across multiple environments, across a a school day, what is appropriate for this student? And those discussions take time, takes data, takes an understanding from everyone in the room. So yeah, my first, first one is endless amounts of money. That would be my first wish. <laughs> and, and second, it would be that the collaboration that is happening on behalf of a student is incredibly meaningful and trusting both ways. I think good things happen when those things can come together. Absolutely. I want to talk a minute about funding. Mm-hmm. So think about the documentary, Our Dyslexic Kids. And think about some of the districts you've worked, that you have worked in who are smaller, who have less funding. Do you think the success story can be replicated? Yeah. I see a lot of parents have organized themselves through multiple formal and informal ways, right, where they have actually established, in some cases, a nonprofit or in other cases, just a very, it's a coffee group of parents who get together. But don't underestimate the power of a parent and their ability to bring in money and and fund something. And I've seen parent groups actually fund scholarships for teachers who want to go through a certification of some sort. But maybe it's just one, but it starts there. It's one. And maybe it's just one year or six months of something. But I think that's really exciting. It's exciting when the parents can make that happen. It's not their job to make that happen, but you have to start, the fire has to be lit somewhere. You have to start, start. And when if a district is saying no, or we're doing something internally and parents know something different because where you get your certification matters, right? I'm really impressed when that happens. And Money is always needed to make things happen, unfortunately, even in the smaller districts. And the smaller districts, you know, Jessica, you'd be surprised what they can do. I'm, I'm, they're, they're sometimes these little districts are super creative and they're sharing resources from other districts and they're open to partnering with outside people very readily, unlike medium-sized or larger districts who want to keep everything internal because of who knows, you know, why there's reasons why (laughs) that needs to happen. Um, But it's nice to see these smaller districts who don't have resources, who are trying very hard to find a resource, contract with people on the outside and make it work. I have a friend who um, was able to find somebody certified in a particular program. And this was before COVID-19 and they were doing it virtually, but it ended up being really meaningful and it worked for the student. Um, So much so that allowed for a different pathway for the district to think about bringing in specialized instruction for students. And they were able to meet the needs of other children outside of my caseload because of this one little spark. The parent had to start it, then it just took over. The, The administrators bought in, felt good, and they could see it. I love these stories. Yeah, they're great stories. (laughs) How many students with dyslexia have you served in your... Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Yeah, many, 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 many over. And you talked about what's appropriate and what's best. And I know that, I know many kids that we both have served, serving them as intervention specialists, also have one-on-one tutors. Can you talk to the audience, particularly parents who have children with dyslexia or reading disabilities, why one-on-one reading instruction is so important to growth? I think every child is unique, right? And their learning style is unique. And when reading is hard, there's a level of focus and engagement that's hard because you see kids avoiding and escaping and wanting to chat about other things other than (laughs) the work at hand. I think it's also relationship building for the student that they have to, can you hang on just a second for me? I'm sorry to stop. I got to get my dad went outside. Okay, so I think um, working one on one, there's an intimacy about how you learn about your student and their needs, and you can be very individualized in executing the support. Yes, it's prescriptive and diagnostic <laughs> when you have one student to work with. 
And that's really important for parents who are working with private tutors, the beautiful for, for parents who have the resources to work with private tutors, right? In addition or in lieu of a district's reading specialist. Um, number one, you ensure maybe continuity of care because maybe that person privately is somebody who can stay with your child for a long period of time versus who knows from year to year. That's not at a parent's discretion necessarily. It's a district um, administrative decision. And those roles naturally just change and shift for a variety of reasons. So I, I think that when parents are comfortable and find someone in the private sector that has a relationship with their child, there's safety in that. And I would wish that for all of my students. I think that's an important component coming, uh, sitting down and getting right to work when there's a trust and an understanding and um, children feel very vulnerable, especially in the area of reading, if that is their disability area. Um, and it kind of just does away with all that. And over time, there's just a beautiful outcome for kids who receive that consistency in their care. And that is the best. I think if parents can secure that, you should. I can't think of anything that is more valuable to me as a parent than my child's ability to read. And if I can secure that privately, then that's, that's a sure thing. I will continue to work with my school district, have as much consistency as I can secure, but it's not a forever promise. And the caliber of that person's understanding how to teach your child how to read. There are lower level certified uh, teachers who are doing a great job. But when you have a student who has been in a very advanced level of a specialized instruction, all of a sudden there's a disconnect in how they're able to help them. And it makes kids more frustrated, I think, because it's sort of taking them back to basic. They're ready for something much more uh, application-wise, right, in their service delivery. So in my perfect world, money is not an issue. And parents are finding the people who not just from a skill set, but from a personality wise, have found a good instructor reading specialist for their child. Quite a significant positive impact for the student. Absolutely. In some cases, we're able to ask school districts to make room for that private reading specialist to come in. There are districts who are open to that idea, not always quickly, not always readily, but slowly but surely. Um, it becomes less, it feels less of a threat. And when we can maybe have that delivery of intervention reading services in the school, it's just, it makes for a seamless transition for the student. In some cases, parents will take their child out to have that service be delivered elsewhere, maybe at their home or a library, and that's worked. And I've seen this hybrid, and sometimes those hybrids are the absolute best kind of programming for the student for a variety of reasons. Yeah, and I hear you say in a perfect world, and I hear you say if you can afford it, but we both know that this world is not perfect. There are severe injustices and inequalities in terms of socioeconomic. Yeah. Inside and outside of special education, it's everywhere. Yeah. So this is really the heart of why we started Mindful Literacy Columbus. It's to provide every kid who needs it with a high quality one-on-one or two-on-one reading tutor. I'm really looking forward to growing this this foundation with you. And, you know, right now our goal is to be able to sponsor one child. And we talked at our board meeting about creating a sliding scale for families. So maybe with our first fundraising push, we'll be able to help more than one in some way. But I think that's, you know, that's the dream. And I I'm so glad to have you on board with it and understand the value and have you you really taught me the value of of what what an impact having a, your own tutor your one-on-one tutor can have your literacy journey. Yeah. And so for me, I think, you know, one of the questions that you thought maybe you would ask me today is I have to find it exactly, but what was one of the biggest joys in my advocacy, right? And I will tell you hands down. It's the longevity by which I get to follow students. I oftentimes will pick up a student in kindergarten, first grade, second grade year, and I, I am sort of this common denominator with their family up until the graduation. I joke and I say, I get an invitation to the graduation party. It's in my contract somewhere. Look for it. I can't tell you how many children I've seen through their graduation who continue to involve me in their adult endeavors. And I have some students who have graduated, have married, 
had children and now I'm advocating for their children, <laughs> which is at the same school where I advocated for them. You know, it's really a full circle moment, but that's the biggest joy. So I see it work and I, I have a good sense of how long of a commitment it takes to make this work. So the remediation for students who are struggling to read, depending on the severity, right, of their profile, it's not a quick fix. It's just not, it, it takes time. It's a slow drip. The consistency by which that is delivered matters. But I have so many success stories that inspire me to do my job better. I really have come to a point that I know what matters. I know what to argue and what to not argue about, where to really focus. I sometimes put those parents and those students that are further along in their journey at a coffee shop with a younger parent or a younger student because I want them to see the possibilities and learn from maybe the parent who has been in this journey longer. What would they do differently? You know, with all of the understanding that you have, what decisions would you make and I think the primary that I've witnessed discussion that comes out of that is find, find your tutor, if not at the school, outside of the tutor, and stick with someone that has the skill set and the personality and the desire to see your child achieve no matter what. And that passion for teaching children, it's out there, you know, and I think that lends itself to what you're doing, Jessica. I think you have really positioned yourself to make a difference in the life of a child starts with one and you know this resource that you're building is going to grow and slowly but surely the community is going to take notice because you are such a treasure. You have really developed into combining your skill set with your mindfulness to create an environment that is safe for children to learn. School is not always safe for children in general. A lot of the children on my caseload and outside of my caseload tell me school's a prison. School is the worst place that they could walk into. Just walking, you know, have trouble getting some of our kids in the building, <laughs> much less in a good space where they can kind of, you know, lower their anxiety and learn. And so I think this, this very special place, this very special service that you are designing is going to do nothing but good. And I think the fact that you are sensitive to the families who have that socioeconomic barrier, right, through scholarships and through, I know it's still in development and we're still talking about that, it's going to open windows, which will open doors, which will change the life of children and who they, you know, become. That's the most magical thing in the world. So any teacher knows they're part of that in some way. And you are designing something that is so unique and so beautiful. I'm, I'm really um, just honored to be a part of it. So I, I appreciate you trusting me and allowing me to see this from the, the ground up. I'm dreaming a big dream for you too. Thank you so much. I have tears in my eyes and I'm so grateful to have you as my teacher and my mentor and my friend. My pleasure. I love you so much. <laughs> love you right back. Thank you so much for your time today. I love all of the thoughts that you put out there. And I will put in the show notes, our dyslexic kids. Thank you. I saw the trailer. I can't wait to watch the whole thing. Oh, it's beautiful. I think the last I heard had 56,000 views. Wow. And do you want to know something interesting, Jessica? I had people I went to school with at the university at Ohio State that have moved on in their teaching and they're out of state contact me. And they want to shift what they're doing in their teaching to more of an advocacy. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, has, this documentary has tentacles, you know, in ways that we never imagined. And it's a beautiful story. And I'm, I'm proud to have been a part of it. But the heart of the story is the parents and the children um, that are featured and their drive to make a good change. It's incredible. So I encourage you one to take a look. Yes, great. Well, thank you so much, Brenda. You're welcome. Thanks, Jessica. Take care. Take care. If you enjoyed this podcast, please find us on Facebook at Mindful Literacy Practice. Our Facebook page for our nonprofit is at Mindful Literacy Columbus. If you are a parent, I invite you to join our free and private group on Facebook, Mindful Literacy Parent Society. If you are a teacher, I invite you to join our free and private group 
on Facebook, Mindful Literacy Teacher Tribe. You can also find us on Instagram at Mindful Literacy Practice. Our website is mindfulliteracypractice.org. Make sure to check out our nonprofit tab where we give you all the information you need to find a scholarship, become a tutor, make a donation, or volunteer. Thank you so much for listening with the deepest gratitude.